How can the microcosm of the classroom prepare us for the world at large? Today on the show, I am joined by news entrepreneur, Anita Lee. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. My friends, you are in for a real treat today with this episode. If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you likely know a few things about me. Number one, I am obsessed with journalism. Number two, I deeply believe that unpacking our identities matters in regards to how we read and write the world. And three is that I see digital literacy as an essential skill in today's world. So it makes sense that I've been following Anita's work for some time now. Anita Lee is the publisher, founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of The Green Line Toronto, a hyper-local independent news outlet. I first encountered her when I had my students watch her TEDx on the power of digital journalism. And not only did my grade eight class at the time deeply appreciate her message on digital composing, but they kept coming back to her ideas related to why representation matters in newsrooms. In this interview, we cover a lot of ground. We get into the ever-evolving nature of journalism, how growing up in Scarborough prepared her for a career of curiosity and connection, as well as some of the ways that the shift towards digital composing may have transformed writing for the better. Even if you don't teach journalism explicitly to your students, this is an important conversation about identity, digital composing, and the role of place in our writing. Let's get started. Here is the incomparable Anita Lee. Anita Lee, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been stalking you. I mean, I reached out to you a few times. <laughs> I've been stalking you professionally because I've been teaching journalism to my students and we've watched your TEDx talk and you've been, you know, in the background of some of the things that I've been doing with my students. So it is a real honor and privilege to get to talk to you in real time today. Thank you. That's so sweet. I'm very excited about this conversation. I was like, it was marked in my calendar and I was like very much looking forward to it. Well, it's an interesting intersection because you're doing a lot in the world of journalism and, you know, the world of writing and education and in K to 12 education is probably, I'm assuming like a little bit outside of some of the spheres that you're in. So yep. we're going to be talking to you today about writing, about digital literacy, but I want to begin with your work that you're doing, you are at the helm of what you call a hyper local news outlet. And in an interview that you did, you said that young people are more likely to trust neighbors, volunteer and vote when they have access to local media, which I found fascinating and totally confirmed a lot of the research that I've been doing. You also said that this is an important service to democracy to fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. now, from a school section, I see humanities teachers, that's like English, social studies, history, geography, those kinds of teachers are often many young people's first point of contact with what you're talking about in terms of democracy and civic engagement. So how might educators help foster this kind of civic mindedness through media engagement? 
So that's a great question. And I, I also want to kind of clarify uh, this, the study I was citing or the studies I was citing, yeah. which is that in general, people are more likely to trust their neighbors, engage civically and vote when they have reliable access to local media that reflects their lived experiences. So I included young people in that because obviously young people are people as <laughs> they well. Are people. <laughs> they are people. And it's important. And I emphasize that because it's important for them to cultivate a healthy media diet, right? Mm. So for me, from an educator standpoint, especially from our humanities teachers, it's you basically are conduits to understanding the role of journalism in society. So kind of framing, like, you know how, like, the way I liken it to, like, I, I like to liken journalism to, like, math and sciences. So I was somebody, when I was a kid, who struggled with math in particular and a little bit in the sciences. And now I'm, like, fascinated, like, by I'm fascinated by math I actually love science witnesses when I was a kid and then when I got older it was just like the, the rote approach to teaching really put me off the subject but I kind of when I got older and I became an adult I reignited my passion through kind of having awe for the subject and understanding that science and math concepts actually help us understand the world better and if we frame journalism in that in that similar way where it's like it, not only does it help us understand the world better the reason why we have all these freedoms and privileges in a democratic society is in part because of the role that journalism plays in illuminating the world and creating uh, mutual and collective understanding and a shared understanding of like a particular geographic area or particular circumstance. To me, it's like inspiring awe in the what journalism does and how it serves the public is really a great way to kind of lower the barrier to entry. And the other thing is just like media literacy. Liter media literacy is such an issue in this day and age. And it really is, I have to say though, it's on the onus of newsrooms and journalism leaders to kind of figure out ways to engage the public in consuming their journalism and just appreciating the, like, the role that journalism plays. But at the same time, I think educators can also do that. And I believe maybe it was something that you mentioned to me, but uh, I was recently at a panel that was hosted by civics, which involved uh, like the, the audience was largely civic educators. And the way the approaches to civic education and connecting that to journalism that they were explaining were pretty, pretty cool and awe-inspiring. So it's just like something as simple as like taking an article, like taking an op-ed, taking a news article, and then illustrating and clearly kind of defining like what makes an opinion piece when it makes a news article kind of illuminating those in all formats as well, because articles are no, like journalism no longer just comes exclusively in a text format. It comes in the form of TikToks and social media. It comes in video, it comes in audio, it comes in like events, event formats. Like it's like kind of journalism isn't really a, a, a solid entity. It's like something that's constantly evolving. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's like very malleable. So really reinforcing that to students is a way for them to understand that journalism isn't just kind of words on a on a piece of paper because I've often found one of the biggest problems around like why misinformation and disinformation is so amplified is because of the fact that people can't parse or dis distinguish between you know something that's just opinion based uh, and something that's like you know a fact-based news article or something that's like just pure disinformation or sponsored content. Like, I don't yeah, know if exactly. you, the Stanford History Education Group, they had this really interesting landmark study and they did a follow-up, but the one that I'm thinking of was in 2016. They had middle schoolers look at, it's basically like a landing page of a news outlet. So you're like, they're seeing like a reputable name, but then there was sponsored content and young people in middle school 
could not tell that that was actually an ad. And it said sponsored content, but they didn't understand what that meant. So even just breaking down, like we think media literacy is this big encompassing thing, but actually understanding, like you said, the difference between a news article, an opinion piece, sponsored content, Mm -hmm. because yeah, like journalism, like I like the way you said that it's, it's hard to pin down what it actually is. Yeah. And just to add to that, I, and to jump off of that point about it's hard to know what it actually is, is like, there are fundamentals. So I, I serve on like the Canadian Association, Canadian Association of Journalists Ethics Committee. And we're constantly talking about what is journalism. In fact, there's a paper that we have that we update every few years that is called what is journalism. Mm -hmm. We were very careful not to speak about formats because there's a time when, you know, things on the internet were not considered journalism and that would be ridiculous and and like very silly in in modern context, right? And so even within the context of our industry, Canadian media industry, there is debate about like what constitutes journalism. And I'll give a quick kind of example. Uh, The Local Journalism Initiative is an initiative that's funded by the government that basically gives funding to news outlets that serve news deserts or places that are not really uh, like basically geographic areas that are not well served by existing media funding to be able to hire a reporter for that area. And in my conversations with this group, the group that's kind of adjudicating or deciding which outlets are going to get this funding, we've had a discussion about the nature of the Green Lines journalism, for example. And I think I've told you before that the way we disseminate news is different. We we create journalism articles uh, tailored to Instagram, for example, and also tailored to TikTok. We also have events where we actually surface community-driven solutions um, to systemic issues that inform our ongoing journalism. But these are none of these that I mentioned are like traditional formats in any sense. But this is an ongoing conversation, which obviously adds to the confusion for like, especially young people and members of the public who are trying to navigate this kind of evolving space. So that's like on the practitioner side, it's also important for us to be clear about what the fundamentals are so that we can impart that understanding to, to students. I want to put a signpost in that because I want to come back to that a little bit because there's so much of what you're saying that actually reflects huge shifts in English teaching as well around digital literacies and multi-literacies and, you know, like this kind of turn around what is writing, like the questions you're asking in journalism, they show up in writing. Before we do that, though, I want to go back in time to Anita as a student. I want to talk about, because you, like, I honestly don't understand how accomplished you are because (laughs) you are a young person, you are doing so much. I am, you know, suspicious if you're actually sleeping at night. (laughs) Who, Who were you as a young person in school? You know, you got your start very early in journalism. I think I read somewhere it was 14 that you had your first internship. But who were you as a young person and what role did writing and journalism play for you throughout school? I love this question. And I want to be as honest as possible and direct as possible about this because I think it's really important because of the fact that my my journey played a significant role in my development, not only as a person, but also as a journalist and an educator as well. So I grew up in an area of Toronto, a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. This is well known. I've spoken about this quite a bit. It's, I grew up, I grew up in a middle-class like uh, family, but in a working class environment um, that was, it, Scarborough was, a, I was actually talking to my husband about this. It was a very interesting and unique place in that it was very diverse and kind of the definition of pluralism or Canadian pluralism in a lot of ways, but it also was really under-resourced. And when I was growing up, it was very much stereotyped and denigrated. And I didn't understand it because I had a really, like it was a wonderful childhood growing up where I did around McCowan and Finch in in Toronto. And so 
that is, I just want to set the context because I think that was quite significant in shaping who I was. So I went to a school called Anson S. Taylor Junior Public School. I still have like amazingly fond memories of that, that school. It was at the top of this hill. We had like a, a pond full of turtles <laughs> and it was like a very intimate kind of setting. It wasn't a, like a big, it, there weren't tons of, it wasn't like big class sizes and it was extremely diverse. Like if you look at my kindergarten class, like there's like, uh, like basically I feel like any sort of background that you'd imagine is represented in my class. And that was just my framework and how I grew up. Like it was just a given. That was my norm during a time when I don't think it was a norm in many other parts of the world. And I was, I think I was a kind of precociously intelligent kid, um, but one that I, I think I was in, in an environment where that wasn't necessarily understood. Like it took until maybe my fifth grade teacher for my teacher to say like, hey, you're, you're gifted in some capacity, especially around languages and English. And I remember also being, I, I remember that was reinforced to some degree, but remember this as a more although it was a really great environment, it was more under-resourced again. So it's not like we got the best things out of the entire school system in Toronto, right? And there was always like funding cuts or something that was just lacking. And so that I was just in a regular public school. And so I knew I was a smart kid, but it took some time for me to kind of really inhabit that or step into that confidently. The other thing that you need to know about me, was like, I was already writing stories from when I was like probably in second grade about my dad and like how cool he was or about how cool my parents were. Um, and uh, like, it started off with that. And then around the time I was in fourth grade, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And that was through like watching people like Barbara Walters and Connie Chung and a bit later on Lisa Ling, who of course are formative for me because they're both like women who are visibly East Asian and representation does matter, especially when you're younger, to be able to see that you're able to kind of pursue your dreams and become mm -hmm. like a journalist who can make an impact and is successful. So that was kind of the context for my my childhood upbringing. It was like really carefree, really cool, like very awesome. I have no complaints about that. Um, high school also, like that's around the time, like post my cares cuts. <laughs> Yeah. When, when it started getting like not as good, like even less resource, bigger class sizes, I felt like actually I didn't, I felt like my teachers were really overtaxed. Now, when I look back, like it's easy to be critical when you're a student, but now when I look back, I feel like there were a lot of the teachers who tried to do their best, but with like very limited resources and went above and beyond for the most part, not everyone, but some did. And I was like, it but still, it was an environment where I started to lose my love of learning, particularly about math mm -hmm. and to some extent science, which is really sad because I actually was a huge science lover when I was a kid. I was really into geology, astronomy, um, like just doing experiments and everything like that. So the nature of learning started becoming more rote, less exciting. Um, and it kind of killed a lot of like my desire to kind of develop myself in certain particular like mathematical and technical areas. I actually taught myself how to code um, in a basic way using HTML when I was like in middle school. But by the time I got to high school, like that, again, like I'm a woman, a girl and STEM isn't encouraged for, uh, wasn't encouraged for girls, especially at that time. So I love that you're asking me this question because it's like a, forcing me to kind of reflect on like that experience and how it impacted me for, for the, like in a negative way, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but also in tandem during that time, I was like an overachiever, like classic overachiever, um, was somebody who was head of yearbook, head of, uh, head of my student paper, 
like involved in a ton of, I was a co-president of like another bunch of other organizations like that. It's always like the way I am now is very much a reflection of how much of a keener and a nerd I was in high school as well. Um, the other thing was like, I think like the thing that's always been kind of unique about me though, is I definitely think Scarborough gave me a bit of like a cool kid flavor, if that makes sense. And I don't mean that in a shallow way, because I do think that has actually been significant in my ability to build the green line in a way that makes it more relatable and accessible and not as pedantic or esoteric or overly, I guess, maybe intellectual isn't the word, but overly kind of, like I said, just like hot head in the clouds and not like mm-hmm. feet on the ground. So there's something about my upbringing in Scarborough that like provided a fa- strong enough foundation, educational foundation, because it was the, it was like during a time when like you know, education cuts were happening, but it was still like not terrible. Um, And I had like a really good kind of uh, childhood experience, especially like in my primary school when it was better resourced. Basically, it was like this combination of me being like very precociously intellectual and having that be encouraged to some degree um, and being a keener in school. But at the same time, like I said, the setting in which I grew up, like Scarborough is the birthplace of Canadian hip hop. So Mm. I was, even though like, um, like rock music and punk pop was really popular when I was in my formative years, especially in high school. Like I, and that was like basically dominating Canadian airwaves. I still also had like different cultural kind of exposure. So like there was a lot of like Caribbean culture. There was like, um, like I said, like a lot of hip hop culture in Scarborough itself. I was kind of in some ways you were like forced it to relate to others. Like, and force sounds like a, a negative thing, but it's almost like you're put in the situation where you're around a bunch of other people. So it's just like becomes natural. And I think that's why it just ultimately made sense that I ended up becoming a publisher of a local Toronto based publication. Cause I know my city really well. I'm born and raised here. And I also was like, I grew up in an area that really is a bridge building place. Like my hometown is effectively a bridge building place. And I do think it's really special because like I said, there's no other place that's really quite like that in the world. Like you can talk about New York, you can talk about London and the diversity, a lot of major urban centers, but Scarborough, Toronto at the time felt very much like a small town still. And it was like, it's a well, where we live in, we lived in a welfare state that's becoming more eroded over time. But unfortunately we also, it was a very stable time uh, for Canada economically. It was like kind of an ideal (laughs) environment to kind of incubate this like second generation kids of immigrants and racialized kids who are like effectively coming are newcomers to this country and also not feel judged in that space and not feel like you're othered. It's like a very unique experience. And I think that's why the reason why, you know, you're saying like, Oh, you've done so much when you're young um, is I think because not really even the abilities I have, of course it's the abilities, but I think it was the confidence that Mm. the area that I grew up in afforded me because I didn't feel different. And I know from experiences from other friends that I've had who lived in other parts of the country, that's not really the case. And so it's very unique, not just in Canada, but also in the world, I believe. Yeah, you can have a quote unquote diverse city, you know, I'm just thinking about New York and it's still very segregated. Like you go to one neighborhood and you see a class picture of kids and, oh, that's the like entirely white class, even though it's in the middle of New York City. But then Scarborough, and it's not true for every suburb in Toronto. It's not true for every neighborhood in Toronto. But I think, you know, there's a few that really highlight that where a class of children, you will have a diversity of people who represent the Toronto of where we are in that time. Like, I think you're like, you're hitting something really important about how we live together. And yes, 
you're able to find a way to live together in this little microcosm of your classrooms. Yes. But then that becomes like, I don't even think it's about you achieving. I think it's about how you become curious about other people. Like as a journalist, you have to be curious about other people. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and actually, I just also want to say achieving just because I know people like achievement and success has different definitions for people, Mm. but it's like, in order to be successful as a journalist, it's about relating to, uh, by the way, guys, that was air quotes. If you didn't hear it when I said (laughs) achieving, because I know this is a podcast, but it's like being able to relate to people and have empathy and want to cover the stories is, is what requires, what leads to six quote unquote success in, in journalism. Like, and if, by success, we mean impact, right? Mm-hmm. And I like, yeah, my curious curiosity is is never been abated. Like, it's it's like this thing that's very. I think it actually shapes my worldview significantly because the green line in this era of polarization is trying to <clears throat> build bridges, but not in a way that's like surface level. It's like really like the the crux and the foundation of the green line is like informing people and educating people around how to live, but not in a way that talks down to them. And mm-hmm. it's really comes from a sense of like from bottom up community driven and also just like it's rooted in a sense of place and I really feel like like yeah geography in this my sense of place and my sense is really rooted connects to my sense of belonging and and how I move through the world which has Mm -hmm. really helped me uh, yeah it just helped me connect it's helped me to connect to all sorts of people and I think being able to to yeah it just uh, really informed the way I, I work as a journalist. I loved hearing about how you came up with the name, the green line. And I'm sure that there's been like many iterations, but that it was, it's the line. So for those of you who are not from Toronto, the subway line, our subway is basically a straight line and then a U <laughs> that goes over top of it. It's a very embarrassingly basic subway system, <laughs> but the green line is the line that would connect Scarborough to downtown. Like it would be the way that, you know, a young Anita would like come from Scarborough into the heart of the city. And then you're saying that the green line is not surface level, but it's on the ground. Like you are on the ground the way that the subway is in the ground and it's yes. got its roots like in place. And I think that that is like a really fascinating layer to it. Like you are thinking about hyperlocal, you're thinking about the news deserts within a big city that gets covered a lot, but you know, Parkdale doesn't get covered in the same way that downtown gets covered in Toronto. I think like the way that you are writing into place is so important that you're, Mm -hmm. I don't think many journalists are thinking about place in the way that the green line does. Thank you, Celeste. I really, I think that's important because it's a, a unifier. Like I kept thinking about part of also like it was significant about like my, like just how I grew up in Scarborough was like, you think a lot about identity and your position in the world because you're kind of it's not like you're in a homogenous environment where you're constantly being validated or your 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 own kind of sensibilities reflected back to you you kind of think about like who am i and how do i get how do i understand myself right and so the the most concrete version of that i mean of course there's principles and values with which i was raised and developed also as an adult but also like geography and your sense of place and how it shaped you is undeniable. You can never just like say like everything, like even getting musical interests or getting like being interested in certain kind of movies. It's not even as tangible as like the place in which you grew up, like the nature that surrounded you, the type of people that surround you, uh, just how like public services function, things of that nature, how safe you felt. So that has allowed me to also kind of, and I want to actually say this because 
I think it's really important. It has, as somebody who like fights a lot for equity, it has also helped me shape my approach in a way that is, it brings people in. And what I mean by this is, um, I started thinking, one of the things that I actually was kind of rejecting in myself was how much like British and French culture also shaped me. Like as somebody who was a really pretty hardcore activist when I was younger, I was like very much gravitating to identifying with racialized communities, including my own as an East Asian person, um, kind of really prioritizing that in an environment that kind of like, I grew up in Bush era, like Laguna Beach, like the OC Gossip Girl type vibes where like, you know what I mean? Like blonde, white was the ideal and that still was Mm -hmm. the case Mm because I'm 35 at this point. And so in some ways, like, I, I think I probably rejected that as a way to kind of prioritize this sense of identity that I felt needed protecting. And as I kind of became an adult and grew up and kind of processed like my childhood and just kind of the circumstances in which I grew up and like my sense of place, I realized like, I can't deny that element of me. Like I'm Mm -hmm. Canadian. Uh, Yes, there's discussions about like dismantling colonial structures, which I think is a very valuable conversation to have. But at the end of the day, they are part of the fabric of how this country was developed. And I couldn't deny how much I was shaped by those cultural norms and the principles on which they're they're created, if that makes sense. But I'm also very much shaped by, I'm sure, like you can't deny like I'm sure indigenous influence because that's just inherent to the origins of the land on which we live, but also like obviously Chinese Hong Kong influence because my parents, American influence because I lived in New York for a long time and I was shaped very much by black American activism. So all these things I think were like kind of leading me to be more having a holistic understanding of me as a person and therefore in made me a better journalist if that makes Mm. sense because it allows me to understand people with all their nuance and complexity while also still being on the side of justice for the reason that that's important as a journalist like that's really you're serving the public and you're holding power uh, to account so hopefully that's that's understandable no that's actually like deeply understandable because I do a lot of work like the first unit that I do with my students is around identity like we start figuring out who are we as people before we start writing any of our major work I mean I haven't been in the classroom for two years but that hearing you say that like when you grow up and you look back on yourself and you figure out who am I what are these forces that have consciously shaped me and unconsciously unconsciously shaped me that then comes into your journalism and I you know I think that there's this like old idea of like we're unbiased and like journalists don't let their own background come into their work Greenline is actually doing some behind the scenes work where you're actually showing us who your journalists are. Like you're trying to like allow us to better connect with you as people. And I, there's so much wisdom in that. And I'm sure that, you know, in the journalism world, that's happening more and more, but you as a person are going to be part of whatever you write and you can't pretend like your background is not showing up somehow in your writing. Yeah. And I love that's exactly you nailed it. And I think it's almost incumbent upon us as journalists. It's a responsibility to actually understand ourselves really well, Mm. because then you don't imbue your journalism with this false sense of objectivity, like, like, whereas it's really just your worldview. And I think the more, the better thing is just transparency as a counterbalance or counter countermeasure to that false sense of objectivity, because you're just being straight up about who you are, what your values are. It's not like you're imposing Mm. it on people, but then they have context for your framework. And I think that's like what's missing in a lot of these kind of angry discussions that are very polarized and 
very binary that people don't understand the context of other people. And people are, I just think about my own personal history and journey. It's like, I'm so complex and I don't narrate everything about my life, nor should people be like, should people feel the need to do that necessarily, you know? So it's about generous assumptions to a large degree, but yeah. And also really understand yourself. And that's why my favorite, somebody once asked me what, who my favorite journalists are, and I definitely (laughs) have them, but the people who influence me the most are actually writers. Cause I find Mm. like writers are really excellent observers of humanity um, and that's really what has inspired me, like inspired the foundation of the Green Line. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because with the Green Line, you're prioritizing younger audiences and more and more today that takes the form of creating content that is like TikTok or Reels or, you know, showing behind the scenes content. And at the same time, I think a lot of educators, you know, I'm studying digital literacy right now as a PhD student. Educators grapple with this shift from traditional forms of writing to digital creation and how writing shifts from, you know, maybe even the five paragraph essay or traditional newspaper piece to what we're seeing now on TikTok, for example. So in your sphere of journalism, what have you noticed has shifted from journalism in a traditional sense as it transposes into a digital space? Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, so there's a couple things. Like one of the things that changed was quantifying like analytics in journals and the introduction mm. of that in the early 2010s around like page views and tracking, like quantifying numbers of like visitors as opposed to impact. And that is, I won't get into it too much, but that's really tied to the business, the the original business model of journalism, which was advertising. Yeah. Used to be done in the form of print ads and classifieds, and that changed to digital ads. But digital ads obviously prioritize number of clicks. Uh, rather than quality of journalism, right? So that really changed the nature of journalism to be a little bit more surface level. And I'm not talking about all publications. There are very um, really reputable, amazing publications that are committed to quality, but just inherent to that structure, it ended up generating more publications that were kind of pumping out quantity. um, And it was more about, because of quantity, they're spending less time on individual pieces to make sure that they're robust and well-researched and well-reported. So that kind of shifted journalism to kind of like almost not even degrade the quality, but degrade the perception of quality in the industry, Mm. which is also like kind of impacted overall trust in news. And that kind of ties back to this original conversation that we were having about like parsing what is actual news versus like a random blog post by somebody who isn't tr- like trained journalist or somebody or like a piece of disinformation or sponsored content like that all plays into that and that's coalescing to kind of create a lack of dis- a lack of trust in journalism mm-hmm. at large also there's other elements to that that I can get into it's not just quality it's also like the oversight and overlooking of a lot of underserved communities that you know really didn't see themselves reflected and that therefore didn't feel compelled to com- like participate in democratic processes. So there's an element of that. But in terms of other things that were really, that have changed over time in journalism, there's a lot of positive. So like community-driven journalism and journalism that's more audience focused from the bottom up is more possible because of the advent of social media and the ease with which we can crowdsource ideas from like many people. So that has been really great. And so I was, I was able to cover issues of justice and equity and race earlier in my career for the reason that there was a demonst- like a demonstrable kind of interest in this topic hmm. during it in a way that I couldn't prove to my editors when I first started out, if that right. makes sense. Like you I have had the to- numbers with the digital journalism yeah. model. Yeah, exactly. And so there's n- n- countless number of times where I said, like, just bringing back the metrics into it, saying like, hey, like this Black Lives Matter piece that I that I wrote or commissioned 
has been getting a lot of traction. And so maybe we should do more of them. And mm-hmm. in fact, that is, I really do believe because I saw that that movement rise with the advent of digital, like digital media 2.0, that that actually, those kind of publications were the ones that kind of lifted up those story ideas because they were focused on like what folks were saying on social media at the time. So that has changed. And then another one that I actually want to mention, which is actually a really fun one is memes. So memes Mm -hmm. have been taken more seriously in the context of journalism in the last several years. And they've, I actually have a newsletter I've written about this where memes are actually kind of effectively modern political cartoons yeah right so it's commentary um conveyed succinctly through an image and some text that's often humorous and everybody's kind of creating these things now and they cut across generations political spheres like any like name you name it like just silly things like cats so that has also kind of increased i don't know it, it in some ways it's actually increased political understanding among young people online though sometimes there's drawbacks to that because there's also a lot of disinformation that's spread through memes. Um, um, and I think a lot more young people do feel like they have a voice. I just think it's, a, I do think like I'm somebody who is in this interesting, like as a millennial is 35, like I also do think there, there should be more structure and guardrails and mm-hmm. protections in some ways to make sure that the, I guess the best of the digital space is being kind of leveraged for, for journalism. Right now it feels like there's a lot of dilution if that makes sense and a lot of confusion. And so that's kind of, so as you can see, it's like, I'm nuanced about my view on this, but it is kind of mixed. Yeah. I, a lot of what you are saying though, I feel it can be summarized with awareness and connection with audience, which I think, you know, like even just the analytics, I know that can have like a shadow side to it, like creating for the analytics, creating for the clicks, but I think in its best form, it's actually being aware of what an audience wants, creating something that is serving an audience and paying attention to what the audience is talking about in another space. And then, you know, deepening into that conversation already, which I think that that is also missing in many classrooms. Like we kind of are writing for a teacher or we're writing for this very confined space, but to leverage the best of what digital writing digital composing can do is really tapping into an audience yeah exactly and like really and that's the thing like it's funny because people it's I really come back to like fundamental like I'm a big philosophy fan and I keep coming back to fundamental truths about the world and humanity and like that always is what I come back to like yes we have this technology yes journalism is evolving yes the way we communicate is evolving but it ultimately comes down to like really being present with people and being consistent so that you actually develop a trusting relationship that's symbiotic and mutual. And that is really what it comes down to. And that's what audience-driven journalism and all this jargon really means. It's just about like, hey, like actually talk to people like people, don't be extractive, be a human and figure out what people care about and report on that really. Like that's, it's as simple as that. Like we use all this jargon, but it's really something that taps into something that's very old in my opinion. Mm, Which is- to go back to young Anita in those classrooms, like that's how you develop those skills really early on. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of which, I want to talk a little bit about this world of journalism in schools, because there has been a lot of funding being lost. Like we've talked about, I mean, the Mike Harris days seem like good old days now because there's like, it's so much harder. And not only is there like funding cuts, but teachers are also like really depleted and things are- I think it would be really hard to be a high school student right now who has a yearning to do journalism, um, especially as 
are we making a traditional newspaper? Like, what are we doing? Are we creating something that is actually this old, outdated model? What, like, you're so tapped into what's going on in the city. And I know that you've been involved in many initiatives. Mm-hmm. A young person today wanting to get involved with journalism, what do you see are possible avenues for those people? I mean, there's a lot of different avenues now. I and I totally agree and and just what you said re- really resonated with me because like with depleting resources, it's and because like journalism is in this weirdly amorphous stage where we're kind of reestablishing like our principles and values and what really what journalism really is. It it's it's um it can be, I guess, a little bit uh I guess confusing for aspiring journalism students, but I actually find that there's more interest in journalism now not that now than ever but I feel like among the young people that I teach there's like a really intense renewed interest in it because of like this emerging ecosystem of digital players that are like challenging the status quo in journalism and that's definitely just not limited to the green line there's places like the local the narwhal um there's a ton of cool places at Torontoverse for example that are really being innovative in terms of formats but also the way the frame of journalism and and how we approach news gathering, for example. So I do think like young people are starting to see themselves reflected in some of these more modern outlets. So if you, I'd say if a young person wants to get involved in journalism, there's, I, I, I'm hard pressed to find like, like, I feel like most schools do have, still have student papers. So any opportunity you have to like write for your student or campus paper, you should absolutely do it because that's how I got my start. The other thing is like when I was coming up and I don't know if this is as common these days, there were two things that really helped me. There were like freelance, like new opportunities that would come up that would be announced by our school where it'd be like, we would pay like this entity, this like kind of like school board related entity is paying students like $25 per article. And so I would do that. And then I'd be, that's actually why I'd say I started working professionally at 14 because mm. that's how I got my start. I got paid like $25 for an article when I was a kid. And the first internship I ever got, and this will segue into an opportunity that I've created that is my way of paying it forward. I had uh, like a co-op slash internship opportunity when I was 16. And that's when I worked in my very first newsroom at CTV in Scarborough, which was life-changing for me for the reason that I had like this big brand name on my resume as somebody who's a teenager. And that just opened up doors for the rest of my life, basically. Mm. And so I, and this is like kind of a plug, but I think one that would be beneficial to uh, listeners of your podcast uh, for the teachers out there, there's a program that I am the executive consultant on uh, that I created for Journals for Human Rights um, that is basically for BIPOC journalism students or aspiring BIPOC journalists. And there's uh, uh, basically placements for high school students as well as high school graduates and then like basically j- journalism school students at the college and university level. And it's paid as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really, that's another really great opportunity that you guys can apply to. We're going to, we have Uh, several years of funding for this initiative so that's a conduit there are a lot of online journalism groups and support networks that you can tap into where you can start to get to know editors ask other reporters questions you can even like pitch freelance articles and there are groups that are called like um binders full of journalists um it's just groups for uh where people crowdsource like support for pieces that they're working on but also like there's a ton of opportunities that come that come up in those groups um, and more concretely, there's Canadian Association of Journalists, um, there's Canadian Journalists of Color and Canadian Association of Black Journalists. The latter two are tailored to obviously racialized uh, aspiring journalists, but there's a ton of resources that are free uh, where you can find mentors, where you can find like writing opportunities and where you can get like coaching on your, in your work. So those are 
uh, get guess great pathways to enter journalism before you actually apply to journalism school, which is always like a really safe bet actually in this country in particular. Yeah, that's, I mean, just the BIPOC youth journalism initiative is so incredible because it actually gives you work experience and it's paid and it allows people to have that big name on a resume like you had. Like, I think that that really can be a game changer for many young people. I'm like really hoping that I'll put the link for, I think applications are closed right now. I just saw on your website. I'm not sure when you open them up again, but I'll put the link on the show notes. So hopefully people can find the show notes and then find out when you will be accepting applications next. Is it once a year that you bring in applications? It's once once a year. Yeah. So the, the last court just finished. So it should be really soon. It should actually be coming maybe in this, well, it's like springtime, I believe when applications start because the program starts in the fall. Excellent. Like I just want to sit and talk to you for hours and hours, but we are going to (laughs) transition to the ticket out the door. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm so excited for this. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. Something you are grateful for right now. My husband. Hmm. What's the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh my God. Taskmaster. Taskmaster UK specifically. I'm obsessed with that show. Highly recommended for anyone's looking for something just really relaxing at the end of the day and and just want to have a laugh. Excellent. I love that. Pie or cake? Oh, the universal question. Cake. Cake hands down. I want (laughs) cake all the way. Beach or mountains? I actually like both. Honestly, mm. I, I can't choose. It's I'm definitely a, a both person. So like Hawaii, I... Vancouver, like somewhere where you get beach. Yes, exactly. Vancouver is actually honestly ideal. They have the yeah. best beaches and then you can see the mountains. So that actually is yep. really nice. Yeah. yeah. Spring or fall? Fall because of the fashion, though my birthday is in spring, but I'll say fall. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very important distinction of like why fall. I love that answer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What is either the best or the worst advice you have ever received? Oh, this is really good. I think the best advice, although this is something that I read in a philosophical text, so I don't know if it's advice, but I'm sure it's been reinforced before, is like understanding that we're actually all fundamentally connected to each other Mm. and that our energy impacts each other. And so if somebody's being uncharitable or difficult, kind of understanding that that's something that you've probably been at one point in your life and that if you're actually generous with this person it actually would it there's a healing element to that if that makes sense wow um, yeah. and I, yeah so that's actually that's probably the best advice and just understanding that like yeah what you put out is what you get so you actually have a lot of control over the way you react to things and not kind of kind of uh, uh go to our base instincts mm. yeah I did not know that you're also a Buddha and all of <laughs> your even, other, not even, I'm just so like literally perfect. not even, not even, but I just like, I'm very into stoicism and I was raised Buddhist actually. And I'm really into Taoism as well. So there's, there's elements of those that really ground me, but I, I fail at it a lot. So like, no, it's, but it's that, just good reminders, you know, I think that's the journey, right? Like just to know yeah. that in your heart and to have that and to have that playing into the way that you're a journalist, I think is also really clear. That's a beautiful answer. Thanks. Let's say you are starting a podcast. Who would be your first three guests? Living or dead or both? Let's go with both. It's a magical okay. podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, okay. So I'll say Marcus Aurelius, Joan Didion, and James Baldwin Ooh. are my answers. Yeah. Yes. Those are my three answers. I think They're actually be... all dead though. 
three separate <laughs> so, episodes or are they going to be on like a panel discussion it'd be cool if they were on a panel like I actually feel like they would probably get along but then they wouldn't all agree with each other and it'd just be like a really nice like soul-stretching conversation Oof. that is very like intellectually stimulating as well so yeah I love that. Uh, the question that I always close with is what is the future of learning? But I'm going to modify it today. I'm going to ask you, what is the future of writing? Mm, I think the future of writing, I don't know. Like I, the thing that I keep going back to again is like the future of writing, the core of it still remains the same. I think it's really about illuminating humanity um and even in journalism that's really fundamentally what we're doing even though it's much more practical practical and less emotional in, in tone um so that remains the same I think the future of writing is that to me language evolves the way we present text evolves so I don't know it's just to me it's malleable and that we should be open-minded about formats that in in the form that it can take but the fundamental still remains is like probably the simplest way I can put it that is a really complex yet simple answer I really <laughs> love how you worded that thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show it was just a real delight to get to talk to you this was such a blast. It's like in my top two favorite interviews of all time. So thank you so much, Celeste. Genuinely, this is fun. Anytime I get to think really deeply about the subjects I love and have sprawling conversations with somebody who who understands and yeah, is, is wonderful. So thank you. Oh, that's such a high compliment coming from somebody who is as amazing thank as you. you. So thank you. Whether you were listening to this as a teacher in the K-12 school system, or coming because of your love of hyperlocal independent journalism, I want to offer some takeaways that I'm left with in the hopes that they may resonate with you in your context. The first, place matters. All of us who have some stake in the practice of writing need to consider the role that place plays in that writing. For example, how can writing in and about the community of a school provide authentic inspiration for student composition? The second one is likely not new for listeners of this show, but I'm left wondering, how can we all give time to deeply consider how our overlapping and intersecting identities shape how we both read and write the world? Writing is, simply put, a way of thinking. So carefully unpacking what goes into how we think and what we think is essential if we're going to be communicating with others in this world. Finally, and I think this might deserve an entire episode to really excavate. There is, and will always be, a shadow side to the technology that encircles our lives. Our work is not to avoid these shadow sides, but to leverage the best of these mediums to help humans realize their full potential and to mitigate some of these risks that these technologies bring. For feedback on this show or to continue the conversation, you can find me on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow, or you can leave a rating and review for the show on the platform that you're listening to it on right now. I read every single one of the reviews and those little comments make a huge impact on helping other people find the show. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep being curious and remember we are teaching tomorrow. <laughs>